most Methodist clergy in America are liberal. The bishops are liberal. The agencies, the seminaries are liberal, and they do not want to enforce the church's teachings about marriage and sex. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. In today's episode, we'll talk with Mark Tooley about the split in the Methodist Church and biblical sexuality. And after that, we have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about the NFL Draft. Last weekend was the NFL Draft. Bryce Young was selected first overall, but much of the conversation afterwards centered on the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, Nathaniel, let's talk about it. Uh, Nathaniel is our editor and content manager. Nathaniel, what did you think? Well, uh, everybody who listens to this podcast semi-regularly, especially with the ribbings Dr. Quinn and I give each other, know that I'm a Georgia Bulldog. And so what made this draft particularly and interesting— he may not be— he, a, a Georgia Bulldog. Oh, he's fan. not. No, he is a he is a, a devoted Alabama Crimson Tide, and fan. he's from Mississippi. So go figure. It doesn't out make how, any sense. It makes no it sense, no Doctor Quinn. <laughs> he's not here, so we can say this about him. But the NFL Draft is always a huge event, and if you're not aware what the NFL Draft is, uh, the NFL Draft is when NFL teams select players from college football who are ready to enter the pros, and so they have seven rounds, and they get to pick various players from the college ranks uh, to put them on their teams. And, and it's always a big event because the NFL is the biggest sport in America and college football is probably the second biggest. So it's the intersection of these two biggest sports. This year, the storyline, as you indicated, Dr. Keithley, was really about the Philadelphia Eagles. Even though Bryce Young was picked number one, kind of an expected thing that he would be picked number one. The conversation afterwards centered about the Philadelphia Eagles and, and their draft strategy. Here was their draft strategy. They drafted with three of their top picks, Jalen Carter, who went to the University of Georgia, mm-hmm. Nolan Smith, who also went to the University of Georgia. And where'd the third one? Keely Ringo. Guess where he went? Uh, University of Georgia. University of Georgia. And this is after last year. All three of those guys, by the way, are defensive players from Georgia's defense. This is all after last year they drafted two other Georgia defenders, uh, Jordan Davis and Nakobe Dean. And then just uh, as the cherry on the top, in the middle of the draft process, the Eagles traded for a running back from the Detroit Lions, whose name is DeAndre Swift. Dr. Keithley, guess where he went to college? Oh, let me think. Uh, could it be somewhere in Athens, Georgia? <laughs> That's exactly where it was. It was it was humorous to me to see this, that they kept picking Georgia players, and, and other people picked up on it. There was tons of chatter and humor on social media. If you go to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles Twitter page, right now their bio reads, Phila Georgia Bull Eagles or Georgia Delphia Eagle Dogs. They're, they're riffing on this. They're playing with this. They see the humor in all this. But it does make you wonder why in the world would they do this? Pick five players and ultimately six players from the same school over a two-year stretch. It's pretty unheard of. 
But though it's interesting about the Eagles' strategy, it's not just the University of Georgia. Two years ago, they began the draft by picking two Alabama players. And so their offense is comprised of a lot of former Alabama players. Now their defense is comprised by a lot of former Georgia players. And so, again, on social media, people have been joking about this. You can find Eagles logos out there that where the A and the G and the Eagles name is replaced with an Alabama A and a Georgia G. People are having fun with this. And so uh, people say, why would you do this? There was a quote from GM Howie Roseman uh, where he evidently went to a Georgia practice recently. Coach Nick Sirianni asked him afterwards who he liked at the Georgia practice. And GM Howie Roseman said, I don't know, like the whole defense. So he's proceeded to draft five of them. Here's what's interesting to me about this whole thing. Obviously, these guys that he picked were talented. Otherwise, they would not have been drafted. But there were a lot mm-hmm. of talented players in the draft. Yeah. What, what stands out to me about all this, and I wonder if this was part of the decision-making process, was the culture from which these players emerged. Mm. Georgia, for better or worse, for me, for better, uh, for the past few years has had a winning culture, not just in the results, but in the way they go about their business. From all the reports from particularly this Georgia defense, they got really good players who not only want to be good, but they're accountable to each other. There's a sense of camaraderie, a sense of unity, a sense of true being a team, being a family, even some of the language they use about that. There is a culture that has developed in that Georgia defense. And the Eagles went and they have drafted kind of the key cogs in developing and sustaining that culture to put on their team. All these guys were good, but they were better, I think, because they played with and for each other. They knew what the goal was, and the goal was not just to be good on draft day. The goal was to work together to win championships, and you hear that in some of their conversations. So what you're telling me, if I hear you right, and what you're saying is they are better collectively than they are individually because they understood the value of working together. So therefore, it made sense that they would be drafted together. I think so. That's that's part of what I'm saying is I think it makes sense they'd be drafted together. I also think it makes sense that if you, uh, as the coach of an NFL team, you want to instill a culture in your team and you see people that also buy into a similar culture, you want those people who are bought in. They're not just talented, but they're willing to work and they're willing to hold each other accountable. And they're willing to be community. And they're willing to be a community. And this is where I think it's so it's so important. And as we think about us in the Christian life, I'm never going to play for an NFL team. I think that was never going to happen. It was not in the genetics for that to happen. You know, we're all embedded in communities. Right. Uh, we're all surrounded by people and our community does matter. Right. The cultures yes. that we're in do shape us. And, and this is for the Christian, all the more reason to be invested in the great gift that God has given us, the, the culture that God wants us to be in called the church, right? Where, where we're surrounded by people who also love the Lord, who also want what's good for us, who, who will be able to speak into our lives and help us pursue excellence together. And we in the church, just like teams, we have a goal. We have a goal in sharing the good news of Jesus and becoming like Jesus and, and so when the church functions like it's supposed to function, we work together towards that goal. To me, when I look at this Georgia defense and I look at how the Eagles are trying to con- continue to construct their team, they see that culture matters, that, that, that a team is not just a bunch of individual people, but people who work together for a common goal. And really, that's what we have in the church. So what you're saying is, is that the situation in Georgia and now in Philadelphia, where they're trying to continue that tradition they are practicing or trying to practice what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called one anotherness. 
Absolutely. And hear me out. I, I do not th- <laughs> I do not for a moment imagine that Georgia football equals the church or, right. or that the— But we get the point. But we get the point, right, yeah. that there is a sense where Jesus saves us from our sins, not to be Lone Rangers. That's what I tell my church all the time. Yeah. But he saves us into the church, into a community. And it, it, it's a telling that when Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, he prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. I, I think we can learn from these professional athletes that— and it really does matter who surrounds you, and it really does matter that, that you're in a community of people spurring you on to, uh, to live the life that God's called us to live. We're delighted to have with us today Mr. Mark Tooley. Mr. Tooley is president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, and he's editor of that institute's foreign policy and national security journal entitled Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. He worked for eight years for the CIA. He's a graduate of Georgetown University. And in 1994, he joined uh, the Institute on Religion and Democracy uh, to found its United Methodist Project, UM Action. And he became IRD's president in 2009. He's the author of multiple books. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, World, Law and Liberty, and National Review, and many others. Mr. Tooley, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure to be with uh, Baptist Friends. Yeah, there you go. Mark, if I may, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your faith journey and how you come to serve at the Institute on Religion and Democracy. As mentioned, I'm president of uh, a Christian think tank in Washington, D.C. called the IRD, which has been around for 42 years. I've been there 28 years. I was hired to found and direct its Methodist program. It's an ecumenical group that works for, has worked for reform and uh, renewal and accountability in America's churches and especially concerned about the political and social witness of Christianity in America. I'm a lifelong Methodist, grew up in the church in Northern Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., came to faith in Christ as a small child in my Methodist church and became much more serious about my faith and church involvement as a a teenager and college student and have spent my whole adult life, which is now over 35 years, working for the renewal of Methodism. So it's very uh, momentous for me personally and for others that uh, this struggle seems to be finally coming to a conclusion with the division of the United Methodist Church. Well, we'll get to that in a minute because we certainly want to talk about that. I mentioned that you are the editor of the journal Providence. Can you tell us a little bit about that journal? I I have read it often and always enjoy it. Providence uh, strives to be a voice for Christian realism in that it uh, looks at the world through the prism of human fallenness, but not despairingly, because as Christians, of course, we know God is redeeming the world, but we have to be uh, measured in our expectations of what humanity can accomplish, especially in politics, especially in statecraft. So Providence has a, a special focus on international affairs and national security. We were founded in 2015 uh, particularly out of concern for the predominance of Christian pacifism, at least in Protestant evangelical circles. And we made the case for traditional Christian 
just were teaching them. Glad to say, I think Christian pacifism has declined, and uh, I'm even willing to take some credit on behalf of Providence for that. Yes, and well, you should. I think you're right. We don't see much in the area of Christian pacifism, but we've seen on the other side of the spectrum a rise of Christian nationalism. Uh, What would be Providence Magazine's position concerning Christian nationalism? We have published numerous articles on Christian nationalism. Uh, Firstly, we certainly would affirm uh, nation states, and we would affirm uh, a godly form of patriotism, and we think Christians should love their countries wherever they are and serve their countries and work for the good and in their countries. But Christian nationalism mostly started out as kind of a caricature by persons often on the secular left who wanted to denounce and mischaracterize conservative Christian uh, political witness. But unfortunately, the caricature has become a reality in that a growing number of very often uh, smart, educated young Christian men are embracing the term Christian nationalism in part to be provocative, but also because they think that, in effect, uh, democracy has failed, society is collapsing, and maybe Christian nationalism as they define it, which would be essentially a semi-theocratic Christian confessional state in which Christians are legally privileged over non-Christians, they think that is the answer to secularism. And of course, we disagree. And I do appreciate your magazine being the voice of reason during this time. I think you've characterized it exactly right in that we would affirm patriotism, of course. Christian nationalism seems to be a very almost dangerous view, considering the history of countries that have at times embraced some type of Christian nationalism. It's not gone well. And I'm thinking now particularly of countries like Germany. So I appreciate appreciate the work that you're doing in that area. Mark, you are very much involved, as you said, in the Methodist denomination. You are a lifelong Methodist. Most of our listeners are Baptist. Uh, This podcast is sponsored by Southern Baptist Seminary. So talk to your Baptist brothers and sisters and tell us a bit about what has been going on in the United Methodist denomination that has led up to some of the things that's happened recently. Well, uh, a brief uh, historical retrospective in that Methodists are brothers with Baptists in that we both grew expansively during the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century, and we both together became the largest religious forces in America in the 19th century and through the 20th century. But uh, Methodism seminaries were liberalized early in the 20th century, and Methodism remained the largest Protestant denomination up until the 1960s when Southern Baptists overtook it. Uh, But United Methodism is still the third largest religious body in America, but sadly fast declining. It's been declining since 1965. It had 11 million members in America. 60 years ago now, it's down well below 6 million and losing hundreds of thousands of members every year. And that's accelerating now that the church is dividing. The church, the denomination, uniquely among the liberal mainline Protestant denominations, has never officially compromised on its uh, teachings about marriage and sex. So United Methodism prohibits same-sex marriage and affirms sex only between husband and wife. But that's only because the denomination's membership is global. And in fact, a majority of our membership is now in Africa. Seven million United Methodists there, fewer than six million in America. Most Methodist clergy in America are liberal. The bishops are liberal. The agencies, the seminaries are liberal, and they 
do not want to enforce the church's teachings about marriage and sex. So there is an unusual church law enacted just a couple of years ago, expiring this year, allowing churches whose properties are owned by the denomination to leave the denomination with their property and assets if their congregation votes by two-thirds to do so. And so we at IRD are keeping a record of who's voted to leave so far. We have a record of at least 3,000 churches voting by two-thirds to exit. We think by the end of the year, there will certainly be 4,000, maybe 5,000 churches, most of whom will go into a new denomination called the Global Methodist Church. For our, our Baptist listeners, you know, this will be something that they may have trouble getting their, their heads around, is the idea of a denomination owning the church assets. And therefore, for a church to leave the denomination, it would almost have to purchase the building otherwise. And of course, that would be prohibitive since in effect, since they're the ones that paid for the building of the structure in the first place, it would seem ironic that they would then have to pay for it again in order to, to leave the denomination. So for most who are of a congregationalist background, that will seem strange. But what I hear you saying is, is that there is this special window. Uh, how long is that? And the window expires at the end of this year. How long has the window been open? Well, uh, many Methodists themselves are learning with surprise for the first time that they don't own their own property. So a lot of eyes are being open. Uh, the window closes uh, midnight, New Year's Eve of this year, but actually much earlier in that uh, not only do you have to vote as a congregation by two thirds, but it has to be ratified by uh, your local um, conference. Uh, it's our equivalent of your convention. So I'm in the Virginia conference. Conferences often follow approximate state lines. And so the last conferences special conferences will meet in the fall. Some churches have to be out by the spring, some will have to the fall, and then uh, that's it. So you're saying the number may be as high as 5,000. That 5,000 is out, out of how many uh, churches? How many ch local churches are we talking about in total? As of three years ago in America, United Methodist Church had about 30,000 churches. Uh, so if 5,000 leave, that would leave behind maybe 24, 25,000, but most conservative Methodists are not in conservative congregations that can vote by two thirds. There was a poll of the denomination several years ago showing 44% of the laity are conservative, about 20% liberal, 20% centrist. So you'll, you will have many, many conservatives in churches that won't or can't leave and who I think will leave on their own. And I would expect that of the 24, 25,000 remaining churches, that those will probably be merged or closed down to 15,000 in very short order over the next several years. You mentioned a new denomination. Tell us a little bit about what you expect to see happen uh, after the uh, window closes at the end of this year. The United Methodist Church will have its first governing convention since 2019, uh, next year, next spring, where uh, conservatives having left, it will almost certainly liberalize the church's teachings on sexuality. And a lot of Methodists who haven't been following events are going to be caught off guard by that, and it's going to be too late to have left. So that will be tragic, and I suspect many people may just end up walking away from their property or trying to buy it at full price. But the Global Methodist Church was uh, announced last year, and it's uh, committed to historic Wesleyan biblical teachings. About half of the exited churches so far have joined the Global Methodist Church, I think maybe in the end 80 to 85 percent will, and we'll have to see those 7 million United Methodists in Africa 
uh, once they have zero tolerance for theological and sexual liberalism. So if the denomination liberalizes its marriage teaching next year, I would expect Africa will leave the United Methodist Church, but will it go autonomous? Will it join the global Methodist Church? Will it divide? We'll have to wait and see. Well, those are serious issues, and we will be praying for you and our Methodist brothers and sisters. So much of this conversation centers on how we understand the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality. Uh, Mark, why are these topics so important for the church to get right? Well, many, many reasons, but I think the chief divide between Methodist liberals and Methodist traditionalists is the traditionalists believe in a message of transformation. The liberals want affirmation. It's very different views of uh, human nature and of God's purposes for the church. But if you're uh, an Orthodox Wesleyan, you believe the church's mission is to save souls and not just salvation, but working on to sanctification and holiness and even perfection. Whereas the more liberal side uh, sees uh, the church as a community of affirmation and celebration and welcome and uh, not being judgmental. And so it's two very vi different visions of the church. So how can we pray for our Methodist brothers and sisters? Well, uh, Baptist friends can pray for your local Methodist churches that they find out about this opportunity to exit. And if they are traditional, that they will act quickly to take advantage of this opportunity to exit. I'm sure all of your Baptist listeners have no local Methodist lay people and even pastors. And so pray for them and encourage them and speak to them about this opportunity. We have been emphasizing spiritual formation this year. And I'm and one question we've asked everyone that has been a guest on our podcast is uh, how does this conversation relate to spiritual formation? But in many ways, you've been answering that question during this entire conversation. How can people follow you in your work? We'll certainly check out our website at theird.org, T-H-E-I-R-D.org, uh, and that, that will link to Providence Magazine, which has its own website, uh, providencemag.com. Uh, and I'm uh, and we are on uh, Twitter and uh, on Facebook. So Facebook. So we'll uh, we'd be honored if you could follow us. We've been talking to Mark Tooley. He is the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy. He's the editor of the journal Providence. Mark, thank you for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors or staff at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. So let's talk to our very own Nathaniel Williams. Nathaniel, what's on your bookshelf right now? A book that I just finished reading and I heartily recommend is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. This is by John Mark Comer. It came out just a few years ago in 2019. And in this book, John Mark Comer says some pretty shocking things, such as this, most of us are too busy to follow Jesus. Wow. That's something we don't want to hear too often, but I think if we all look at our schedules, if I look at my schedule, it's probably more true than I'd like to believe. Yeah, uh, if I was to look at the number one thing that maybe sometimes causes me not to follow the Lord like I should in any given day, it's probably my schedule. Absolutely. I'm, I'm interrupting. Go ahead. No, that's okay, because it's not just your schedule, it's my schedule. We live in the most uh, busy culture probably that's ever existed. We always have things to fill our time, and so John Mark Comer's pushing back against that, the hurry and the rush 
and the busyness of our lives so we can begin to focus on, uh, on the things that matter most. Some quotes from the book. He says, attention is our scarcest resource. What you give attention to is the person you become. The mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. Another quote, following Jesus has to make it onto your schedule and into your practices, or it will simply never happen. This is a book that's uh, super convicting for those of us who are type A personalities who like to do things and get things done. He's encouraging us to slow down a little bit and focus on the things that matter most. The, the book is, is filled with lots of wisdom. Very little what he says is novel or original. Others have said this over the decades and over church history, said these same things. But John Mark Comer is super skilled at being able to package these things in a way that people of my generation and younger will be able to really glean from and, and learn from. And so it's a great book. Again, the book's title is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World, John Mark Comer is the author, and only read it if you're ready to be convicted. That is a great recommendation. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, subscribe to the podcast. And be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast platform and share it with a friend. We'll see you next week.